Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Today we are going to take another little break from 1 Peter. I know some wives are disappointed. We preached to you last time. You drug him out here this morning. <coughs> we'll get to him. But I got to reading some this week, different places, different things. And I got to looking at the Passion Week. The Passion Week begins today. Today is what we call Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday that Jesus made his entrance into the Holy City. The more I read uh, from each of the Gospels, uh, just the more it touched my heart. And I knew this is where God would have us be today. We're going to look at Matthew's account of this, Matthew chapter 21. And we will begin our reading in verse 1. Matthew will dedicate the entire final eight chapters to this episode of Jesus' life. We say passion. Uh, Pascha is a word for suffering. We translate it passion. The passion of Christ is synonymous with the suffering of Christ. So... Uh, this whole episode, we would call it the, the passion episode or the passion section of the gospel. And all four of the gospels, uh, they attribute quite a measure of time to dealing with this because it is so important, so important. A lot of things have been said and done and Jesus is healed some, raised some from the dead. Uh, he has saved some, given them eternal life. He's done a lot of things. He kept telling his disciples, especially in the Gospel of John, that my hour has not come, my hour has not come. But finally he looks at them one day and he says, my hour has come. I know what I have to go do. And we'll pick up the story here and Matthew's account of it. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem, and had come to Bethphage. This is uh, Beth is house of, of course, uh, it's house of figs, sometimes house of unripe figs. It was a little village, part of Jerusalem, but it's just across the Kidron Valley. So uh, he's, he's very close to the city here. He's at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples and saying to them, said, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. 
gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road and the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. It's a Hebrew word, it's Hoshiana. In the Greek, it's Hosanna is the way it is pronounced. It is simply save, save. So they're crying out to him, save. Now, let me help you understand a little bit at this point, if you don't. They're looking for a Messiah. He fits pretty much what they've read from Zechariah 400 years earlier. This riding in the town on this donkey with a colt and all of that, that matches what they have heard. They know very little about Jesus. It's not like this was a fan club that was just waiting on the day to erupt. But when he comes in the town with this kind of fanfare, and they're like, wow, this is what Zechariah said. This is how he said that the Messiah would come. You've got to understand these people are starving for someone to come and set them free from the Roman oppression and go ahead and usher in the golden age, the, the age to come. Because Jewish people had life broken into two ages, this age and the age to come. The, the day in between the two ages, they considered that the day of the Lord. And you see that all through the Old Testament. That's when God sets everything straight. That's when he puts Israel ahead of all the other nations. And they rule everybody. And they are top dog in all the world. And the Romans are going to get what's coming to them. And boy, enemies better beware. I can tell you in four days to the same crowd... He will be their enemy. Because he may match some things they've heard, but they don't know who he is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. This is what the Jews would say when whoever the king was would lead the people toward the sanctuary and they were about to have a worship service to, to Yahweh and they were about to lead out in praises to God. This is what they would say. Blessed is the he who comes in the name of the Lord. Talking about the king coming in the name of the Lord. And of course this time he is the king and he is the Lord. When he had entered Jerusalem... All the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, Well, because some of them obviously knew something, this is the prophet. Obviously not enough. But this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. We don't realize it in Mark's, in Matthew's reading of this, but if we could look at Mark's, we would know that Night fell, and today now is Monday 
of the Passion Week. And it says in verse 12, And he entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Don't miss this, it's so sweet. Came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they just joined in and praised. No, not them. They looked at him like the church just bought new hymnals and didn't even meet about it. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for your self. That's, he, he did this. It's a quote from the Psalm, Psalm 118, I believe. But he is quoting from the Old Testament scripture that when the high priest and, and the dignitaries get too dignified to just shout out and cry out to God and, and to praise Him and, and, and to lift up their voices, He has put His praises, He has prepared praises, actually put them in the mouths of these infant children because He knows they could care less about what the high priest thinks. And they're crying out and praising Him. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. He may have spent each night in Bethany. We don't know for sure. But that's where his friends lived. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's about two miles away. It's not very far. But he's in Jerusalem now to stay for sure. He has come in and if we look quickly and we should if we look at Sunday he enters Jerusalem now make sure that we kind of get this because it's sort of it, it the whole I think sometimes resurrection Sunday business is is somewhat complicated you know at the because of the tilt of the earth and all of that uh, we have uh, the shortest day of the year we have the longest day of the year so that means we have something uh, gradual going on, okay? And so it also would mean that there must be two days out of the year that night or darkness and light are the exact length. Now that's more of a mathematical thing and that is an area where I, I don't like to go because I can get in over your head so quickly. Uh, I can actually get in over mine really fast. I know nothing about math much. But it would be obvious, logical to me, that there must be two days then that, that, that we have what we call the vernal equinox. And that's where in the spring of the year, and this year it happened in March, uh, we had a day where uh, the night and the day was exactly the same length. After that, we look for the first full 
moon. Stay with me. Get your farmer's almanac out. We have the first full moon. And then after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, the first Sunday after the first full moon, after vernal equinox, is always Easter. Okay? And I know you're like, man, am I glad I came. Just to hear that. But you ought to wonder, why is Easter on a different Sunday, seems like every year? Well, Sunday, though, the week before, he rides into Jerusalem. On Monday, he cleanses the temple, and on Tuesday, he will take his disciples over to the Mount of Olives, and they will spend a long time there talking about certain things that he says, all right, listen, I'm about to go. And where I'm going for now, you cannot come, he tells them in the Gospel of John. But he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I am going, I will come back and I will take you home to be with me so that we can be together in my father's house. And that was very disruptive to them because they just couldn't wrap their mind around it. We left our fishing nets on the beach back there, God. Do you not remember? We walked away from our families, our homes, our livelihoods, our everything, and you told us you would never leave us, never forsake us, and now you tell us you're going somewhere, and for now we cannot come. But all of this is beginning, or it will in the few next few weeks ahead make sense to them. But he has told them, I am, I am going away. He tells them also on the Mount of Olives, those several things. He gives them the parable of the virgins, the five that were wise and ready to meet the bridegroom and the five that were not. And there's a theme in his Olivet message. The message he gave his disciples. He didn't preach that to the crowd. He pulled the disciples together. And I'll say this quickly, but he sat down with them basically and he said to them, there's a lot of confusion about when the Son of Man comes, who is ready and who is not. And he actually lays it out for them. He tells them it's just like a wedding. He says, were five of the young maidens that were to be at the wedding, they were ready and five were not. And says, when the bridegroom came by their house to, in the wedding procession, uh, all of them were asleep. None of them, even the ones that were prepared, were expecting it. He said, but the bridegroom came by and uh, the, of course the five that were ready went on and went to the wedding and later the other five shows up and the bridegroom tells them, depart from me because I do not know you. He says, disciples, that's exactly what it's going to be like when I come back. Those passages, man, are, they ought to touch a nerve in us. Who are these people? Jesus didn't say a few would think they're ready but wouldn't be. He said no, many will think they're ready. And they're not. Many will come in the final days and say, Lord, Lord, we've done all kinds of things. We know what to call you. We've done many marvelous works and all that. And Jesus didn't even look at them and go, no, you didn't really. You just were kind of, you know, pulling a Benny Hinn on them when you did that. You were, it was a sleight of hand. You didn't really do those things. He never argued with them about any of that. He says, you've got one problem. I do not know you. <coughs> you may be the finest Methodist or Baptist that ever lived. He says, you don't have a relationship with me. After the Mount of Olives, Wednesday comes around and we have no idea what he did on Wednesday. No idea. 
But on Thursday, he meets with his disciples again and he washes their feet. And when he meets with them, he gives them a new commandment. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And that new commandment is that you love one another. In the Latin, it's mandatum novum, which we call Monday, Thursday. Thursday of the commandment, the new commandment. But it was when he washed his disciples' feet. Sometimes churches will have services. And I actually thought this week, I, I'll be so glad when the COVID thing is over. Maybe next year, wouldn't it be cool? I, I thought about this. What if we had at, at Cornerstone Fellowship a Passion Week? And, and we did it sort of like a revival. But we would start on Palm Sunday. And every day that week, we would come together and we would meet. And Thursday night, you know what we would do. Well, how cool would that be? To have a whole week. And you say, well, what would we do on Wednesday? Well, I, I don't know. We just walk around out here. Because we don't want to know what to do. No, we, we could come together and have something every day that week. It would be a great way to remember his passion. On Friday, he was crucified. On Saturday, he was in the tomb. And on Sunday, the greatest event in history of the world took place. This is the most important week. For all of the world. Well, Hosanna to the son of David was a political appeal. They thought finally we got the right guy in the White House. How, how sad is that? Finally, we think we've got a leader that can pull us together as a people. And you got the zealots thinking that, yeah, buddy, we got the sword sharpened. We're ready for him. If that's him, we're going to get him behind him. He can trade that donkey in for a stallion because we got a war to fight, baby. And the Pharisees, boy, they were all ready to go as well. And the Sadducees and all of the different sects of Judaism that thought that one day not only is Israel going to rule the world, but we're going to rule all of Israel, us and our little group with our little ideas. And absolutely none of that happened that way. Some of them said, who is this? That ought to tell us there. That sometimes people can praise. These are the same ones that were shouting. They can throw down palm branches. They can call him king of kings. Hosanna to the son of David. And all of that. And then look at somebody and go, who is that? You say, well, I, I must know him. I've been going to church for years, preacher. That doesn't mean you know him. That doesn't mean you have a relationship with him. That doesn't mean that he knows you. Don't make me tell you about Tiger Woods again. I'm tired of talking about him. But I've told you before how I know him, but he doesn't know me. I tell people I know Tiger Woods and they just lean forward. They want to know more about it. Was I in there with him when he wrecked that car? I'm glad I wasn't. I've never met him in my life. But I know him. I know he exists. I ha have that understanding of him. If you tried to tell me he didn't exist, boy, I could put up a great argument. I actually saw him one time from about 600 yards away. That's as close as they ever got. I, I know about him. But I don't know him. And he doesn't know me. Well, let's take a look at what happened when Jesus comes to town. When Jesus comes to town, he's going to demonstrate some things and he gets started quickly and don't miss this. We do sometimes. First of all, he demonstrates his ability. 
He comes to this town and he's not even been there yet. Not even been inside this town. And he says, okay, disciples, I'm going to send two of you on ahead. You're going to find a donkey and a colt. How does he know that? Well, because he created the donkey and the colt. It comes with the territory. He knew right where they would be. He said they would be tied together there. So he sent, verse 1, two of his disciples say to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there in a colt. With her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. I'm not sure that'll get you out of Walmart without paying. <laughs> but God is so in charge of all of this. He is so sovereign, even from the very beginning. Don't, don't miss any of that. Uh, because it, it, is, it is so very important. As a matter of fact, Dr. Alan Ross says that this is a living parable that he is doing. He has taught them things, said things to them. He says, but this is a parable he's going to live right out in front of their eyes. First of all, he is going to teach them about his ability to move what is idle. We'll look at three things quickly here. He says, you will find a donkey that is tied there in a colt. With her, untie them and bring them to me. He can take what is standing around doing nothing and activate it, put it to work in his plan. And that is really important. He can take something as dumb as a donkey. I mean, we've already learned that in the Old Testament he could make a donkey preach if he had to. And we know now that he can do anything he wants to do. So first of all, he can take that which is idle and put it to work in his kingdom. And maybe that's what he needs to do with you. Maybe you are just kind of sitting around yawning through the whole thing thinking, well, I don't know. I guess I ought to be doing something for God or whatever. If you really know him and, and he really lives in your heart and life and, and he is really your savior and he is really the priority in your life that, that, that he needs to be, then surely you want to get busy doing something. And, and you say, but I, I don't know what I can do. I don't, I don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. God's not looking for ability. He is looking for availability. Did you know God likes fat people? Faithful, available, and teachable. Yeah. God loves fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. Secondly, he can loose that which is bound. Untie them, he says. They're bound and can't move. You get them moving. Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I'd love to get involved, Pastor. I, I, I'd love to do more, but, but, but I, 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 you, I've been hurt. I, I've been through a lot. I meet people a lot of times that uh, I, I'm, I hardly know their name before they start telling me how they are a victim of circumstances in their life. How they were raped when they were younger. How they were molested as a child. How they went through a bad marriage. How somebody in another church did them wrong. How they had a pastor they had thought the world of. They didn't turn out to be what they thought he should be. And they've been hurt. They've been crushed and and basically they're telling me pastor mike don't expect a whole lot from me because well i've decided to be a victim the rest of my life man god can set you free maybe it's a divorce abortion maybe it's your financial situation i listed a bunch of things here secret sin depression bad marriage rebellious child suffocating job, anger, issues, guilt, shame, lack of education, bad decisions, trouble with the law, uh, debt, low self-esteem, 
previous church experience. I wonder if somebody was ever going to jump up when I read that list and say, I've got all of them. <laughs> well, if you have them all, God can untie you. You don't have to live like that. And then I like this third one, the last one. He's, he's ability to, to break that which is wild. If you weren't raised on a farm, this passage is not going to mean a lot to you. But when you climb on the back of a donkey that's never had anybody on him, do you know what they call that in South Carolina? A rodeo. A rodeo. My goodness. But it's all right. Never had anybody on him that Jesus says, I can ride him. I can ride him. I know you might be thinking, yeah, preacher, I'm not... So sure, you seem to be really straining those points out of it. I'm just telling you, all of these are things that he could not have done had he not been God. And it gives me hope for a lot of people in this world because, man, I was this way and maybe you are to this very day. Nobody rides you. Nobody breaks you. Oh, I mean, you're nice enough. You can get along with folks, but nobody tells you what to do. You'll not be disrespected. Just telling you right now. I will not be disrespected. It's just not going to happen. Well, maybe you're one of those that uh, uh, you, you, you always are kind of looking for a fight or maybe not looking for one, but telling people if you want to fight, you can get one here. Maybe that's kind of how you feel. Or maybe you're one of those people that you pride yourself in telling everybody exactly what you think, and if they don't like it, they can get over it. The one thing that will change all of that for you is when you come to meet Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because if He can leave heaven's glory where nobody even questioned one word He said, where He could speak and creation stood at attention. I love the Hebrew writing of Genesis 1. Like be. That's only two words. And like was. That's how much authority he had. He came here to this earth and lived among us in this place where they jerked out his beard. They lied about him. They beat him half to death. And then they put him on a cross and he died for our sins. They abused him, mistreated him, misrepresented him. They scorned him. They did everything you could possibly do. Stripped him naked, embarrassed the life out of him. And they butchered him like an animal in front of the entire world. And if he is going to be my Savior, I have to be willing to say, God, if I follow you, then I need to take up my cross and I need to be willing to experience the same things. Leave that place where I'm large and in charge. Maybe you work somewhere where nobody doubts you. Maybe you have a marriage where you are, are king of the hill, buddy, and, and you just run everything. I feel sorry for whoever married you. Oh, well, I've met some guys, uh, especially, that they like, yeah, we got married and the two became one and I'm the one. I pity your wife. I can tell you, he can break the unbreakable. Don't think he can. I bet you I could get 10 to stand up right now and testify that, oh yeah, 
He can break you. You can buck all you want to. But when God gets a hold of you the right way, He can break you. And like uh, Frederick Buechner's book on the wrestling match that Jacob had, he called it the magnificent defeat. You might also say, yeah, and when he broke me, it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. Well, walk with a limp now. Yeah, you do walk different once you wrestle with Jesus, don't you? He can break you. Well, let's move on. He demonstrates his ability. Secondly, he demonstrates his aim. In verse 5, he comes riding in on a donkey. That was a symbol of peace. Riding on a stallion would have been a symbol of war, but he came to bring peace. And, and some might say, well, I thought he had already said, don't say that I've come to bring peace because I came to bring a sword. Well, that's between men and and, and, and other men and women and family members and all of that. He says, serving me will cause division in all of those relationships. But he says, between humans and God, I have come to bring peace. And this world is not very peaceful. As a matter of fact, the very city he's in is the most religious city in all of the history of the world. And it's the most rambunctious city in all of the history of the world. But he didn't come to bring peace between men. He came to bring peace between us and God. That we might be reconciled to him. Because we had a problem. We had a problem called sin. And it had separated us from God. And he was coming to reconcile that relationship that through him, he could give us his righteousness. Now, now if he hadn't died on the cross, he'd have just had to change up the rules or, or, or he'd have had to swap things around. And we might think, well, he's God, he can do whatever he wants to. No, not him because he is a righteous God. He is a just God. And he doesn't do things that are contrary to his nature. So when he tells me that when I sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin, that means he's justified in doing it because he's already died for it. He has already paid the price for it. It's not like he's going to go, well, I'm, I'm God and I'm just going to look. This, is a bad, this was a bad situation and I know you didn't mean to. No, that's not how it is. He's justified in forgiving us because he's already paid for it. Already paid for it. Well, number three, he demonstrates his aim, his ability. He also cuts loose with his anger. In verses 12 and 13, he entered the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said to them, for it is written, and this is in Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. If you went to the temple, there, there's two words in the Greek for temple, and you'll get confused if you don't at least recognize that there are two terms. There was the temple proper, and that was the naos. That's the holy of holies. No one, no one went in there but the high priest, no one. Then you had the Hiram, and that's the temple complex. And it had these different courts, and if you started inside the deepest part of the temple area, you would be in the court of priests. The priests could go there, and then behind that was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priests could go in there. 
If you backed away from that to the next court, you would have the court of Israelites or the court of men. Because the women folk didn't get to do it, but if you were an Israelite, you could go to that court. You could go to that point, that to that line. The gate of Nicanor uh, was a huge gate. It took 20 men to open it, and that's what you went through when you left the court of men into the court of priests. And then when you backed on out a little bit further, you would have the court of women. And then when you backed all the way out to the furthest courtyard, you had the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles went to pray. They couldn't go any further than that. They had signs up, and I know the Roman government didn't allow them to legally uh, uh, take someone's life for a crime. That capital punishment was off the table for them, but they, they had signs that clearly mark in this area, you step across this line, and it will cost you your life. And they would that it would cost you your life. The Gentiles gathered out here in this outer court. That's where they had to go to. They couldn't go any further, but they would gather there to pray. And God had already told us in the book of Isaiah, He says, this is going to be a place where the nations can come and pray. There's going to be one part of my temple. You might not be a Jew, but you can come there and you can cry out to me. And, and, and no matter who you are or where you are from. Well, it would be in this area that the money changers and the guys selling the sacrifices that, that people would bring uh, at this particular time. It's where they set at their tables. It looked like a flea market. And if you came in and you had money that was not the right currency, they would change it for you for a fee. You bring a dove, and I don't care, you might have the best looking one in the whole town. I'm almost going to bet you, though, if you didn't buy it from the guys out there at the flea market tables, they'd find something wrong with yours and tell you you need to buy one of ours. And they'd drag one out of there, look like he had rheumatism, sell him to you, make a profit. Somewhere later that day, they'd sell yours and make a profit off of it. Jesus knew what they were doing. Boy, he went in there <laughs> and he went to turning over tables. And he went to beating and swatting. Jesus just didn't do well at church. <laughs> he didn't play well with others. Boy. Man, I'm going to tell you something. That was his anger. His anger. I wonder when he looks at us today, if he doesn't see some things and boy, it convicts my heart. Because see, they made that whole process about them. It, it was a needed thing. You needed to give a sacrifice. And if you couldn't have, didn't have one, you needed to be able to buy one. But they had turned it into a, a money-making business. And it didn't please him. They had made it about them. I wonder sometimes if God wouldn't look at us and say, how can you read this passage here and not realize that at your little church, you've made it about you? Oh, we joked while ago about, oh, people looking like uh, the church just bought new hymnals and didn't have a business meeting about it. Some of you who are new to church might not understand why, that gives a lot of us a chill up the spine to even think about it. Hell hath no fury 
like a church member not invited to the right business meeting. So ridiculous. They never, ever voted in the New Testament. Did you realize that? As a matter of fact, the only time I can find where they ever voted at all was in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers and 10 said we can't go in and 2 said we can go in and the majority was wrong. And that's the last time they ever voted. They weren't set up like that. They didn't make church all about them. And I know we can mean it innocently, but don't let it grow and fester into something worse. When you hear something and you go, boy, I'm telling you right now, that's my kind of music right there. Amen. Well, we weren't singing to you. We were singing to God, so maybe we need to take a fresh look at that. That don't mean that we got to be hard-headed about it and, and never do anything that anyone else can relate to. But I think a lot of people in America, especially in our Baptist churches, boy, their world is so small. You ever wonder what Chinese bluegrass would sound like? But you want them to sing it when they get to heaven. Those poor folks are going to have a hard time up there. We want them to sing that's that southern gospel. I'm going to tell you, amen, preacher. And you're looking at a guy that played it and sang it for years. And some of it was the worst theology in the world. I remember we used to sing Canaan lambs just in sight, buddy. And we could bring them to their feet, I mean to tell you. And we'd get to the very end and we'd hold it out. And we always had one guy that sung like a girl. We called him the tenor. And he'd take that one note outside from here. Canaan land's not heaven in the Bible. Canaan land is a place where God can take his people and bless them. That's not heaven. Crossing Jordan's not going through death. Terrible theology. But it made some good old southern music, buddy. Whatever kind it is. And I warned the younger generation as well. When you hear us old fogies say, hey, I like how great thou art. And I like singing He Touched Me. You be careful when you make fun of that too. Because church is not about you either. It's about God. Don't make this place yours. I mean, you just think about it. What if I came to your house and told you when we left we had a really good time? And, and we might come back if you would just paint that living room a different color. <laughs> would you head off to Sherwin Williams today? What if I got in your house and said, I don't like where this couch is. Can we move it over here? It wouldn't take you long before you'd have to remind me you're not at your house, Mike. You're at my house. When we come to this house, we are not at your house or mine. We're at God's house. Amen. This place is about Him. Not the geography of it either. His aim, His ability, His anger, fourthly, His agenda. It says, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. You know where they had to come to meet him, though? They had to meet him in the court of Gentiles because the blind and the lame didn't get to go in there. This is going to be the sweetest point of the whole sermon. If somebody beside you is already snoring, wake them up. They need to hear it. I can tell you, the blind and the lame couldn't go into worship. 
But after they met Jesus, they could because the blind and the lame were considered outcasts. They were considered unclean, unfit to go in and worship God. But once they met Jesus and Jesus healed their blindness and Jesus healed their lameness after meeting Him, they could go in and worship God. I know a guy that's got the same story. I was the same way. I was blind. I was lame. I was a lost sinner. I was undone without God and could have no relationship with Him whatsoever. But I met Jesus. And when I couldn't go in there where God was, God came to me. He came down here and lived on this earth and, and, and He died for my sinfulness. And when He was through with me, I don't understand it. I still feel unfit and unworthy and I know I am outside of the grace of God. But I now have a relationship with God that no one can ever take away from me. Boy, when you, could you imagine some of those people going through the crowd? And they're going, hey, 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 wait, buddy, weren't you lame yesterday? They could just go, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> I'm not going to say it that way. <laughs> I met the one who wants this place. And you're right, I was unfit. Last of all, he demonstrates his accessibility. His aim, his ability, anger, agenda, his accessibility. In verse 10, or verse 16, it says that he said to them, Do you hear what these little children are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. For yourself. In Psalm 8, verse 1, the Lord our Lord, his name is most wonderful in all the earth. It brings you praise in heaven and above. And you have taught children and babies to sing praises to you because of your enemies. And so you silence your enemies and destroy those who try to get even. Man, Jesus says these little simple-minded children, they have no theological degrees, they've not been to seminary. They don't have a string of perfect attendance Sunday school pins that looks like a bicycle chain. They just believe who I am. These blind and lame folks out here who've never had any hope, they've put their hope and their trust in me. I am God Almighty. And I have come to you because you couldn't come to me. I wish they had gotten it. But they didn't. They left that day mad. Four days they would be yelling, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And this interesting bought the son of you, remember that, right? Now, but his father, Barabbas' name is son of the father. But he was the wrong son of the wrong father. Man, give us something with which we're familiar. 
we had this whole plan in our mind of how we were going to rule and reign in the world. And I still see people to this very day. They sell all kinds of interesting books about eschatology and the state of the Jews and the rebuilding of the temple and all of that. Man, alive. I'm like, read the Bible. And they tell me, hey, there's a great book out by what's his name. And I know who what's his name is. I'm like, well, there's a great book out by, you know, the God. Read it. came to them when they couldn't come to him. That's an awesome word for us today, friend. Maybe you're here today and you know deep down in your heart that it's time to let God finally break you. It's time for that pride or that sin or that whatever in your life that you've justified or held on to or whatever it might be. Well, I felt so convicted by this passage. God's got to be so tired of hearing me say I'm working on it. I need to be broken sometimes. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you. And we thank you so much for what you did for us. We thank you so much, God, that you never had a moment where you finally said, I've had enough, and, I'm, and the process is off. The, 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 the deal is done. I, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. These people aren't worth it. God, we're so thankful that you loved us enough. And so many times when you could have turned your vengeance loose on these people, you humbled yourself as a sheep headed to the slaughter as if you were totally ignorant of what was about to happen. But you knew exactly what would happen. And you went there because you loved us, God. I pray right now for anyone here that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. God, maybe they are one of those that they know you exist, that they believe a lot of things you say, but Lord, they don't have a real relationship with you. Lord, they don't have you living in their heart. They, Lord, they, they know about you, but they don't know you. They've not trusted you fully and your righteousness for for their own heart and, and they've not asked you God to, to give them your righteousness as a gift of grace God they're, they're trying to do the best they can they're, 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 they're trying to, to treat others the way they want to be treated they, they've got a good standard code of conduct Lord but they've never come to you and said with the best I can bring I am nothing but a sinner and I need your righteousness God I need your righteousness as a free gift of grace. I cannot earn it, and I can't afford to die without it. I pray, Lord, that you give them the courage to ask you right now in the quietness of this moment to ask you, Lord, to transform their life.
give themselves to you, Lord, fully. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.